Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we will spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, uh, you can call us at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249, or email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. Or you can join our Facebook page at Let's Talk Torah. This week's show is in memory of Terry Elpert. And if you would like to sponsor a show in memory of a loved one or the merit that someone should have a speedy recovery, just go to the website, send me a message through our Facebook page, through, uh, through uh, again, our Gmail account at letstalktorahgmail.com. Again, no apostrophes. Also, this week's show is made possible by Beautiful Beginnings Baby Boutique. Oh, that was four Bs in a row. Beautiful <laughs> Beginnings Baby Boutique here in Southfield, Michigan. If you need baby furniture, clothes, any of that stuff for kids, Please make sure to check them out. Just type in on Google, ba- Beginnings Babies Boutique, and uh, our beautiful Beginnings Baby Boutique, and you'll find exactly where they are. You'll be amazed. Mickey and Debbie Stern are the best. They'll take care of you. Actually, uh, Debbie, who's a great friend of Yeshiva Starchei Torah, will be calling us in later in the show to talk about a Torah dedication that she and her husband made possible. So this week, lots of topics. First of all, we're going to talk about the last commandment in the Torah. That is the command to write a Torah scroll. Oh. And we've talked in the past, but Ian's not here. How many letters in that Torah scroll? Uh, 300,004. 304,000, but That's awfully very, close. <laughs> very good idea. Would you have accepted a lot? I would have accepted a lot, <laughs> a lot. but I would have wanted to know a real <laughs> lot. Right? So we're going to talk about that whole thing. It, it will, we're going to get really, really involved. We're going to have some videos about it. We're going to also discuss, we'll get into some fake news on that if we have time, that Torah is not in heaven. It's actually a verse in last week's Torah portion that the Torah is not in heaven. What does that mean? How does that apply to us? Important stuff. And very important, uh, you know what holiday is coming up this week? You know I don't. Rosh Hashanah. Very good. RD is there. Again, two points for RD. And Ben, sorry, so far not yet. It's all right. I'll catch up. (laughs) One of the holiest days of the year in the Jewish calendar. We're going to talk about the chauffeur. And back to one of our favorite topics, we'll get into some food. And I'm sure that will make everyone quite happy. A couple years ago, uh, the school that I'm involved in, Yeshiva Stachy Torah, we actually had a Torah dedication. We're going to talk to Debbie Stern about that in a few minutes. She and her husband uh, helped us create the entire dedication process. We're going to talk about that with her. And it, it's an amazing process from beginning to end, what it takes, what's involved in this command of writing a Torah scroll. Telling you 304,000 letters, there's probably a lot of books you could read in the library that have 304,000 letters. But you got to write this one, every single letter, by a scribe. We're going to talk about the rules and regulations. He has to write each letter. Um, the parchment we're going to talk about, the whole, the whole shebang of how we put together a Torah dedication. You know, the Jews are called the people of the book. Right. right? You've heard yeah, that before. I have. Do you ever wonder why? Sure, absolutely. I, I don't know why. You don't know. Okay. I don't know. There you go. Obviously, the book is the Torah. Right. Right? God gave us the Torah. Our lives revolve around the Torah. The Torah teaches us how to act, how to really the the gamut from getting up in the morning to going to sleep at night, holidays, business, um, relationships. The whole gamut of a a Jew's life revolves around the Torah, and the rules are in the book. And we're going to talk about the rules in that book. So interesting, again, the people of the book, because it's not a book you put on your shelf. You read it once, you put Mm -hmm. it on the shelf, and if nobody throws it out, it it looks nice. (laughs) But we study it. Right. It's it's precious. We we honor it. To give you an idea of Mm -hmm. what it means to honor a Torah scroll. For example, um, in the synagogue, in the temple, when the Torah scroll is removed from the ark, everybody stands up. I don't think you ever heard of another book that when it walks into a room, that everybody stands up because a book is coming in, because it's, it's a book. Right. The Torah is not a book. Torah is our life. It's holy. We treat it carefully. If a, if a Torah scroll, God forbid, were to fall on the floor, the people in the synagogue would actually fast. 
there would become a fast day for that Torah scroll. If there's ever a fire that, uh, unfortunately, a Torah scroll gets burnt, they will actually have a funeral ceremony to bury the pieces that are left. Uh, besides the value of it, which we'll talk about, um, many synagogues now have safes to keep everything fireproof. I mean, they can have a lot of Torah scrolls. The, these Torah scrolls value anywhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 each. They're not cheap. Because it's handwritten and it's right, all, yeah. you know, you're not printing it. There's right. the hope. It's a year-long process. Yes. Anyways, um, so as we said, that this is the last command in the Torah is to write a Torah scroll. Every Jew actually has this command to write a Torah scroll, which is not practical for most of us. You have to have the handwriting and the skills. You could hire someone to do it. But the purpose of this command is so we know what the laws are. If we just finish saying that my life revolves around the Torah and I don't know what it says, then it's going to be pretty hard to revolve my life around the rules and regulations when I haven't picked up the book. Which, by the way, would be a great idea. Now they're in English. The Art Scroll and others have great English for the whole Torah. Of course, it's in Latin and Greek if you want to go a little more ancient. But uh, you should read it cover to cover. You would learn a lot of stuff. Maybe not all the details, but certainly a lot of knowledge and then more questions, which is what we're all about. Um, interesting, there was a 13th century Talmudist known as the Rush. So he said that you can actually fulfill the command of having a Torah scroll by having Jewish books, as it doesn't have to be the handwritten copy that they will use in a synagogue or in a temple. It can actually be photocopied, printed like we have nowadays, okay. Anything that we can study and learn law from. That's pretty much the rule. So let me just give you a quick overview. Okay. Because we're going to get ready in a few minutes to actually watch a fantastic presentation. So first of all, you need parchment. You can't okay. use regular paper. It's got to be parchment. Parchment has to come from a kosher animal. Okay. And they're going to prepare that parchment knowing that it's going to be used for a Torah scroll. So they're not going to take it off the shelf. And the process of turning it into parchment is actually done by hand. Okay. And I always have it in these machines and rollers and stuff, but the process is done by hand. After they get all their pieces of parchment, and it's going to be a lot of sections. No one's got a piece of parchment. You'd have to have a humongous cow to have parchment that would be... It's, know, is it vellum? Is that what it's made out of? Or uh, No, it's, it's, the real, it's the real deal. Well, well vellum is, a, is, is like it, a... a Similar to, uh, it's an animal product that you can be used right, for Right, so paper. this is not like the product. This is the actual skin. Okay, we, yeah, gonna, it, it we're is. We're going to shave off the hair, and we're gonna, sometimes they split it, sometimes they don't split it. They're going to put it in the chemicals. I got it, I got gonna, it yeah. And they're going to scrape it down again right. and smooth it down and spread it out. Maybe they'll have to, to use some lime or something to lighten it up. They have to draw lines because right. we want everything to be neat. So right. they're going to have to etch in lines. Um, it's handwritten with a quill. They okay. actually use a quill and ink. So you don't get to use like a regular pen that the ink is there. You're actually using a quill from, uh, I don't know, a duck or a goose or something. And it's not a script. You can't just flow no, through right. the script. You actually, each letter has to be formed like a piece of artwork. Right. So 304,000 pieces of artwork on these super neat lines. It does take about a year to write. Maybe it's, it could take less if, you know, that's all you did all day, but I think you would lose your mind if you did it all day long. Mm -hmm. um, again, the costs are anywhere forty to 50000 for an you know a nice one, and then, of course, if you have somebody that's a fantastic artist, it's going to be much more. So as I told you, um, I was involved in a Torah dedication project with the Stern family, and when we met with the Sterns and asked them to be the lead gift for this project, they wanted it to be a year long project in school. There had to be lots of learning with the children. So we did all kinds of stuff. We brought scribes in. We brought artists in that have uh, their own type of artwork with Torah stuff. We had, if I'll get to it later, it's about our high school, did amazing stuff. They had a special day with special projects and booths and speakers and, uh, and they created booklets. It was like the whole school for a whole year was busy studying the laws, living the laws. I asked my, my, my boys in class today, they remember when they did some writing. One of the things that was the most fun, though, was actually the preschool. Because the preschool, what they, we did was we made a special day for them, 
not me, but their teachers, where they were going to have a what we call a mock dedication. It was all the things that adults would do mm-hmm. on the day of and in preparation and dancing and all the stuff that goes along and torches and mothers with baby carriages, all that stuff. Um, they would do on their own day. So the teachers, of course, had to put hours in to preparing the program. And we had uh, some scribes come down to write with the children, and they came dressed up. And it was just an amazing day. And one of the things, one of the videos I wanted to show, I thought people would appreciate this, um, is we took videos, and I tried to cut it down as much as I could because it was a whole day. But if RD can find that video on our Mac Yep, you want the, the preschool video. Let's do the preschool one. Let's put that up. It's about a four-minute video, and hopefully after that video, we're going to talk to Debbie Stern, and she's going to tell us some of her thoughts on this uh, Torah dedication. All right, I'm going to launch it now. Okay. Okay, I hope you enjoyed those children as much as I did. That was just such a fun presentation. While we're working on, on getting our guest to, uh, to answer the phone, uh, Leonardo's working on it. Um, ben, as you were watching, you had a question for me. I sure did. Now, I know how, it, how this works in, um, when it comes to, say, with the Christian Bible, because it used to be hand-copied. 
and that was what the origin of the word margin for error. And that's why so many copies have varied in, in, in their translation. But when you make a mistake with the Torah, how do you handle that? I mean, okay, that's excellent. And that really is, is the difference, for example, between the New Testament and the Torah. Mm-hmm. There are no mistakes. It has to be perfect. That means when somebody's reading from the Torah and he's going over the words, if a word is misspelled, or if a word is missing a letter, we actually have to go ahead and put that Torah scroll on the side till a scribe will come, either scrape out some areas and rewrite it. Every okay. scroll is the same. So you could be anywhere in the world. Not yeah. yet. No, uh, well, and as anywhere in the world yeah. where you're going to open a Torah scroll, anywhere, mm-hmm. from however many hundreds of years ago, they will all match word for word, letter for letter. Not to interrupt, and she, does she know that we're calling from an 844 number? Would she ignore an 844 number? Oh, you know, but that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. I just told her I was calling, but she didn't know what number I'm calling from. Should we call her from a different number than tell her we're calling from an 844? Just huh? text her and let her know that we're calling from an 844 number. I wonder if she even knows how to text. Nice lady. <laughs> but do you think she knows how to text? Now, this will be fun. Here I am. We'll I'm find gonna, out. We're going to find out if... I can actually text one second. You're asking for my, let's see, Debbie. Isn't that cute? You can do these things online. Yeah. We are, you know, you know I'm slow. My kids make fun of me. Exactly the same, because we're going to learn rules and laws and regulations from every letter, from every word. And once I can have letters and words that are wrong, well, then I don't know anything. Right. Then everything could be wrong. And who said this word is right? And who said you got this one right? And so change, change just destroys everything. That has to be one of my favorite things about the Torah in particular, as far as written religious pieces of uh, literature or whatever um, is that it is the same that's it's amazing like there's no it's an, and it's handwritten version yeah. there's not it's the torah it's, it's amazing. And, and that's that's where things have gone wrong with the, the new testament where yeah. there are people might make a mistake and you'll have to you know they'll write the correction off to the side in the margin but some people won't care about the mark won't look at the margin and they'll go well it's this and this you'll see so many different versions of it and then you have people fighting over the different versions of it right because yeah. you're stuck you know and you have to imagine before the printing press mm-hmm. go back seven eight hundred years ago right so you have somebody standing in front and you'd have 20 30 40 people in a room and he's dictating, and they're writing. Right. So this one didn't pay attention, and this one spelled the word wrong, and this one fell behind, and this one got ahead. And all of a sudden, you have, there's no question, you will have. found the Torah is removed a new Torah a new Torah scroll has to be brought out till that word is corrected it is of the utmost importance which is really amazing because we're talking 3300 years ago all handwritten and you've got countries that didn't see each other for hundreds of years they certainly had your North African countries and European countries they couldn't connect with each other, but they kept writing Torah scrolls, and they're all the same. Right. And- I have a simple question about the Torah. Which, how are you supposed to read it? Left to right, right to left, top to bottom? That was a very good question. I don't even know how you knew to ask that question, except it's all in a f- well, different every, font. Everything's different, you know? Right. I- so unlike English, which is left to right, Hebrew is right to left. Now, I'm not sure. I think Arabic is also right to left. So it could be okay. those... Uh, those languages from that part of the world are o- always go from right to left, which is interesting then, because if you're a scribe, if you're a lefty, so it's great because you're not going to smudge the ink as you're writing. Yeah, there you go. But most of us write with our right hand. So you're going to have to write the letter, and you're going to have to be careful not to smudge it. Right. Yeah, you got to kind of keep your palm up 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, yeah. I mean, again, it, it is a type of artwork, so yeah. it's a whole funny thing what has to happen, but um, it's certainly, it's certainly work. There's nothing to talk about in that one. It is a work of art. They're beautiful. They actually have nowadays, because um, when you're buying something mm -hmm. for this price, you want it perfect also, and it's a little hard to check letter by letter. Right. So I have a friend who told me one of the ways they used to check was they would make a tape recording backwards. So a person would read every letter backwards. So you follow every letter backwards. No one right. makes mistakes on every letter backwards. Right. Um, another way they can do it, they can match up two Taurus girls together because the likelihood of two lines having the exact same mistake is unlikely. And they actually have now computers that you can sort of uh, scan it through. Right. And that will give you a pretty good idea, more than a good idea that everything is perfect. Okay, still waiting for my friend, not getting through. I will apologize for her. I know she's by a, a furniture show. And maybe they're not letting her step away. And she will owe me. But in any case, I wanted to take it a little further. So you watch the kids, and I wanted to give you more of an overview of what really happens. So if you saw the children, you have an idea. But now we'll give you a real idea. So it happens like this. So the scribe has been writing this Torah scroll for close to a year. When he gets towards the end, so he's going to leave, depending on how many letters he needs, he's going to leave three or four lines where instead of writing the letters, he's going to outline the letters. Mm -hmm. Because anyone involved in the project, it's a very big honor to write a letter. Now, of course, most of us don't know how to write a letter. So if it's already outlined, so the scribe gives you the quill, he puts a little ink on it, and you dab it over the outline, and then he fixes it after you've uh, made a mess of his uh, artwork. Which somebody pointed out to me, if you ever want to know if a Torah scroll is authentic, so what you do is you look at the beauty in the middle and then turn, and we got a roll really, mm -hmm. to the last page. And you'll always see the last three, four, five, six lines just don't match the handwriting. It's, all, it's, it's just not nice mm -hmm. because that shows that people filled in all the letters so you have a good feeling to know that that was the process. So they're going to leave lines. They're going to leave lines with all these um, high, not highlighted, outlined letters. What we did because of time constraints, we had people come on Friday. We had each teacher come in with his class so they could watch the teacher fill it in. And, and the different donors came in and they filled it in. And it has to dry. It takes time. And then we put it away for the Sunday dedication. Um, what happens is the last letter is, is the biggest honor. Because since we said before that a Torah scroll that's missing even one letter is not kosher. So that means when you fill in the last letter, you made a kosher Torah scroll. So that's a very, very big honor. We actually had our principal fill in the last letter. Then you'll see, so you'll see in the video, you'll see uh, him filling in the last letter. Then somebody will pick up the Torah scroll for everyone to see. He'll sit down. Someone will, will wrap it up and tie it up and put a, put a covering on it. Again, these are all honors. And then you have, you have a procession. So it'll, we'll go ahead and we will have the, um, have usually the donor will take it. We'll mm -hmm. get canopies, we'll have parades. We had children with banners leading the parade. And when the children got outside the school, we actually gave them torches. And you'll see we paraded around the parking lot. And as we got close to get to where we were heading back in the school, the Torah scrolls that are already in the school come out to greet the, uh, the new Torah scroll. And there's more dancing. And after all the dancing, it's put away, and then mm -hmm. there's usually some type of festive meal. And that's the general um, happening of what happens with a Torah scroll dedication. So here's what we're going to do. Let's show that second video, R.D., and I'm going to call, when my sound goes off, I'm going to call my friend Debbie and find out why she's not picking up her phone on me. All right. So Sounds as soon as you're ready, let's get This is a, the real deal, a real Torah dedication. So right. let's see what this looks like. Here we go. Thank <laughs> you. 
technical difficulties that I don't know how to text. Um, we do have Debbie on. Leonard, almost on. Almost. Debbie, you're on? Debbie, can you hear me? She cannot hear me. Now she can hear me. Yes. Debbie, can you hear me now? Now I can hear you. Oh, Debbie, first of all, I do appreciate you stepping away. I know you're very busy today, you and Mickey. And I've been so busy praising you and talking about your uh, beautiful beginnings baby boutique. Um, I'm glad you made it on. Otherwise, I kept talking about it and I missed you. So I oh, do. Okay, no, you didn't miss me. I'm here. Okay, great. Um, I want you to know when you watch the show online, you're going to see we have videos of the preschool mock dedication, the actual dedication. There's, uh, we got uh, Mickey carrying the tourist girl over there. So you are now online forever. Just figured you want to okay. know that. Okay, good. So, Debbie, I wanted to ask you a few questions. You were obviously, um, you, you, were the, you and Mickey were the ones that made it possible for Yeshiva's Darche Torah to have that Torah dedication, which was made in memory of a dear friend of yours and Mickey's and mine also, was a rabbi, Menachem Greenfield. 
Um, just a few questions. Maybe you can share with us some stuff. Um, why did you get involved with a Torah dedication? Well, you and Rabbi Khan came into our office one day, and I was stunned to hear that you did not have your own Torah scroll. And I am only a traditional Jew. I am not Orthodox or anything, but I knew the minute Mickey looked at, we looked at each other, we knew that you needed to have your own Torah scroll. How important it is for a school that's teaching these young, beautiful minds and not to have your own Torah scroll was, was beyond my imagination. We were so happy to have the opportunity. Yes, and not only that, and we've been talking about it, not only did you create the, the ability for us to have the Torah dedication, but we also, throughout the whole year, we had programs. I know you came down. We had high school programs and preschool right, programs. that was very impressive because we had some very, very thought-provoking programs that the children were able to learn. I, myself, was able to learn what the girls did and what, how the boys did it. There was it, that... That made the, the dedication that much more important because you were able to teach all your... Yeah, to teach the kids. Right. That... The kids had such a wonderful opportunity for that. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. You know, I can even hear it in your voice. The passion is fantastic. Um, this is just a, you know, a, an outside-the-box question, sort of. But I, you know, I know you love children and you love school. Certainly you love Yeshiva Sachi Torah. Uh, what are your feelings towards Jewish education in general? And, of course, Yeshiva Sachi Torah specifically, if you'd like. Okay, one moment. Jewish education, one moment. Do you want to tell them how important Jewish education is? That's alive. It's the survival of Judaism. Unfortunately, in our traditional culture, contemporary culture, not everybody is giving it to them. And we depend on the, we as traditional Jews depend on the Orthodox to ingrain in their children everything that they can possibly learn. I know through my um, studies with partners that the people that have been raised, it's just an assumed passion, but for the children that have to learn the passion, the Jewish education, the Jewish education Dr. Torah gives is so overwhelming and heartwarming that I just can't see enough. Oh. You said more than I could ever ask for. Um, I did want to ask you, I mentioned that it was, uh, the Torah dedication was in memory of a friend of yours, Rabbi Menachem Greenfield. What was your relationship with him? Well, Rabbi Greenfield first came, uh, my husband first learned with him. And then whenever I wanted a group, as a, as a female, whenever I wanted a group of us ladies to learn, or I had questions, um, we became part of their family. Um, Leah always invited us. We would sit at their beautiful holiday tables and see how their husbands and wives would get along and the beauty of the children singing. And it, the traditions just permeated that you felt that this was, this was just life every day. It wasn't that you go outside and it was any that it was different. It's not that necessarily in a lot of the contemporary Jewish um, homes. Their home was filled with love and tradition, and we were part of it. They included my family whenever they could. We were included, and it was the learning that um, Nikki gained from, from Rabbi Greenfield that was so important. Nikki's telling me in the background how sincere he he is, and it was, it, I think it changed our lives as just regular, you know, traditional Jews into creating a little more passion. You know, Debbie, you were one of the lucky ones that built a relationship with Rabbi Greenfield because he touched a well, lot of well, lives. I think a lot of people had a wonderful relationship with him. He was a very warm, giving soul, and if you met him, you just wanted to learn more from him. Well said. All right, two more questions for you, Debbie. 
One. Okay. Was the Torah dedication everything you imagined it would be? Was the dedication everything I imagined it to be? I think it was, I saw my husband walk around with such a smile and his heart, he's telling me, he he was so emotional. It was so hot that day that they kept walking and walking. My children, I wish, were on time more than they were because they missed a good part of it. But it was very, it was what it should have been. It was the um, noise of the children, the noise of the, of the husbands of the men, everybody that, that's so proud to have had that um, received the Torah. And, and, you know, we really had not seen many or been involved in many dedications like that where they're march, marching around with such happiness. And to share it with the Greenfield family and the cons, and you, it was just, you're our friends that we loved, and it was everything because we saw the singing and what everybody did. But the joy on my husband's face and how happy his heart was was worth a million smiles. Okay, whoa. So, Debbie, before I let you go, is Wait, there... I can't hear... I'm sorry. I can hardly hear you now. Is there, before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add? Um, anything you would like to add, Mickey? Hold on. Huh? I'm very, very thankful, and it's very gratifying for me to be associated with uh, people, with Dorhai Torah, with Rabbi Mrs. Khan, Rabbi Jacobson, all the people that are associated with because their sincerity, their integrity, and honesty is not to be questioned. And we're deeply privileged to have that opportunity. And also, in loving Rabbi Greenfield's memory, I hope that the children will always remember the Sefer Torah, not because of us that was given to us, but because of Rabbi Greenfield, what an incredible individual he was, and the effect that he had with our secular Okay, Rabbi Jacobson, I let him have the final word. Okay, Debbie, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate, I know I pulled you out of a meeting. And for our listeners, please make sure you check out Beautiful Beginnings Baby Boutique. I guarantee you'll be happy you did. Debbie, thank you so much. And of course, we'll be in touch. Thank you and a happy and a healthy New Year. Yes, a happy and healthy New Year to you and Mickey. Be well. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. Huh. Passion, huh? Yeah, I'd say so. Wow, I like getting people with passion on the phone. Oh, you can, it just comes through. They were really amazing in the whole project. They've, they've actually, I think one of our past presidents by the dinners, when he would refer to this couple, he would call them like the parents of Yeshiva Starchi Torah because they, they just cared and they, and, they, and they came to bat whenever we needed their help. They were really, really quite amazing. Anyways. Back to where we were. If you'd like to contact the show again, you can call us at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. You can email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. There is a verse, moving on to a new topic. There's a verse in last week's Torah portion that says the Torah is not in heaven. So it's interesting. I asked my class what that meant, and I got some interesting answers. But there's really two basic answers, without giving you all their answers. The first is that no one should ever be able to say, I can only study Torah in this location. I must go to this school. I must go to this location. I must have this setting. The Torah was given in this world. It's not in heaven. It's not over the seas. It's quite accessible. Actually, that uh, rabbi we were talking about was a memory of. One of the things he did was he would go and study with people. And the Stearns were an example of somebody he studied with. So people, even people that have a, a, a lesser, weaker background, he'll stu- he would study with them. I'd do the same. Here we're doing it on the show. So the idea is that Torah is everywhere. Now with internet, I, I, officially I have people in Nigeria listening. So clearly... Um, we can pick this up anywhere in the world if we need. I told you, up in the mountaintop somewhere in Salamanca or whatever, right. or Spain or Portugal or whatever mountain range. They're all over. They can all hear it. Somebody's listening. Always. Somebody is always listening. Always. That's the, that's the beauty of it. The second answer is, and this is really a very fascinating concept, and that is when Moses went up to get the Torah, mm-hmm. 
And God gave him the written Torah, which is the scroll we've been talking about. And then there were some books written afterwards, the prophets and the writings. That was the written Torah. And Moses was given all the rules and regulations. Uh, the Torah, for the most part, when it will say a law, will will just say a few words to say that the this law exists. But there's no details. The details are the oral law. So Moses came down with written and oral. For example, um, a, a, an animal has to be slaughtered. To be kosher, an animal has to be slaughtered. How do you slaughter an animal? So there's rules and regulations. But the, the written Torah does not say those rules and regulations of how the animal's neck has to be cut and which veins have to go through and to make sure it's done in a way that the animal is not suffering. Those rules and regulations are not in the Torah, in the written law. Those are all in the oral law. So Moses was given both written and oral. Came down, his job was to teach the Jewish people the whole Torah. Now, not everyone will be smart enough to remember every single word Moses said. So interesting enough, for over a thousand years, there was always one person who could be pointed to that he knew everything that Moses said. Everybody else is studying, they forget, they got it wrong, they heard it wrong, they, they said it over wrong, they got confused. There was always someone. That went on for about a thousand years. That actually went through the period of the first temple. But then what happened was there were exiles and wars and more exiles, and it just wasn't possible to find that person who knew everything. So, and God knew that was going to happen. So when he sends Moses down with the written and the oral law, he also gave him the tools to figure stuff out. And as, as we talked about earlier, the RD asked every letter, there can't be a mistake. The reason there can't be a mistake is because the oral law has rules how if there's letters that are extra, without getting too involved, the Hebrew language is very different. In English, every word is a sentence. I'm sorry, every, you, need, you need a lot of words to create a sentence. Mm -hmm. While in Hebrew, you actually have one-letter suffixes, one-letter prefixes. You can put two or three suffixes and prefixes on a word, so one Hebrew word became a sentence. So it's not like, it's not like and or he, or they, or she, or ours. Those are all prefixes, suffixes, um, in, with, from. All that is prefixes, suffixes. So therefore, every word has numerous letters that actually have meaning. Again, a child in school will learn to translate those letters. But you can understand the importance of those letters, because if it's an extra letter, well, are we supposed to do something with it? Right. If it's missing a letter, well... How do you know you can figure this out? So the, those Talmudic rabbis were given the tools. The tools are in the Talmud. They're all there. That was what happened. And it started with a, a couple arguments amongst the rabbis. And then uh, as there were more schools and, and more students and more exiles and the students weren't able to comprehend everything their teachers were teaching, so slowly but surely arguments came about. Um, it wasn't until after the destruction of the Second Temple where um, Rabbi Judah the prince said, we're going to have to make a change. We're going to have to write down the basics of the oral law because people are forgetting. It's just too hard. And they wrote in a very concise way where you still didn't have all the details, but it was almost like uh, notes and bullet points mm -hmm. that would help you through. A couple hundred years later, after all the schools had gone through what we call the Mishnah, the, that part of the oral law, all the commentaries and explanations were added. That became the Talmud. In the 6th century, the Talmud was completed and what we call sealed. Because the rabbis understood in that generation, even earlier generations, that the level of scholarship had gone down. Part of, and uh, I can explain it, it's hard to understand it because we're not there, but part of being able to have all this knowledge correctly in a person's head, the person has to have a very clean, clear, holy mind. The more pure the person is, the more pure his mind is, the more he can comprehend. And that was changing. Obviously, it changes even more at an accelerated pace nowadays. So the rabbis understood that. So when we say that it, the Talmud was sealed, that means no one can argue on what was said previously. And this, just to throw in some fake news, as we always like to throw in some fake news, um, the rabbis do not have the power to change any law. 
They can't decide, for example, I have my tefillin, my phylacteries are being uh, fixed up by somebody as we speak, I hope. Uh, they have to be black. That's the rule. So a rabbi can't go ahead and say, you know, I like blue. Blue is my color. I think we'll make blue. No such thing. The rules that the written Torah and oral Torah have, those are the rules, those are the regulations. What do we need the rabbis to help us? We don't know all the information. Uh, modern science uh, adds things and changes things. So we have to know how, to, how the Torah would deal. We talked about, I think, in the past, heart surgeries we talked about, for example, or any kind of stuff. But rabbis do not have the power to change any laws. So now it leads to some difficulty sometimes, and this is not the show to get into it, but to give you an example of that difficulty, um, when a husband and wife are married, so you, to get divorced, they need a legal document. That legal document happens to be called a get. That's the Hebrew word for this legal document. If that legal document is not given from the husband to the wife, and it's given through a court, the wife is not divorced, she cannot remarry. Now, technically, the husband can't remarry either, but the wife for sure cannot remarry. So there are ladies that are stuck, and they're very unhappy about the situation. And they will say sometimes, why can't the rabbis do something about it? And without, again, getting into all the details, because it's very touchy and makes people very nervous, but the answer is because first we have to deal with the rules and regulations. That's the Torah law. Obviously, there's a wicked person that's taking advantage of this lady. He's not a good person. At the same time, we have a difficulty how to deal with it. There was some people found a way to deal with it. Uh, unfortunately, they're sitting in jail right now because uh, this was a story uh, on the East Coast where some rabbis would beat up the husbands that didn't want to give that document, and American law doesn't like appreciate that. Other countries seem not to mind, but American law, very anti-beating up people to get something done. Right. So again, I don't want to get too involved in the whole thing, but by fake news, when people say, well, why can't the rabbis do anything about it? You can't do anything about it. There's actually a famous, I'll leave you with a famous story on this one, that we've got to get to Rosh Hashanah, because three weeks in a row and I haven't made it yet. There's a famous story about Torah is not in heaven. And this was with two great rabbis in the time of the Talmud. So they were working on the law. It happens to be about the purity of an oven. That was the, the question. The oven was broken and put back together. So you have these two rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua. And they argued, and the majority sided with Rabbi Yoshua. And the ruling goes when rabbis have these discussions of, uh, of how to interpret, we go according to the majority. Majority means of people on their level. In other words, if you had a surgeon saying the person needs surgery and, a, and people like me and you saying, I don't think he needs surgery, like, who are you going to listen to? Right? Our opinion, I mean, you're a good guy, Ben, but I don't think our opinion counts for much. No, I'm not an expert on you know, medical procedures or anything like that. I'm not a doctor. Right. Yeah. Me neither. So right. therefore, it, with rabbis, it's the same thing. If you're, if you're not an expert, then you don't have, you can have an opinion, but it's certainly yeah. not part of the vote. Right. So in any case, this Rabbi Eliezer wanted to prove he was right. Okay. So he, he called out to heaven, and he says, if I'm right, the river should flow backwards, and the river flows backwards. And if I'm right, that tree should be uprooted, the tree was uprooted. And if I'm right, a heavenly voice should come out and announce that I'm right. And it did. And Rabbi Yeshua said, Torah is not in heaven. And it was once God gave the Torah to this world, to Moses, to the Jewish people, heaven has no say in the matter. In other words, technically, if the rabbis were to have gotten it wrong in the Talmud, it wouldn't matter, because that creates the law. Even with the holiday of uh, Rosh Hashanah um, soon approaching, it's dependent on the calendar. And the rabbis were the ones in control of the calendar, because you need witnesses to come, and they saw the new moon, and, and what time of the day was it? Was it cloudy? Was it not cloudy? So the Talmud talks that the angels asked God, uh, when is Rosh Hashanah? And God said, what do you want for my life? Go ask the, go ask the rabbis, see what, the, see what they say in court. Mm -hmm. Now again, today is not the day to get into it. Nowadays, we do have a calendar. That calendar was created by the rabbis because they knew there was going to be difficulty um, with the exiles, so therefore they created what we call a 6,000-year calendar, which were about to start year 5,778, 
which is from when the world was created. So we're getting towards the end of that 6,000-year calendar. Something else to talk about another day. So now, I, I know I had to leave myself a couple minutes. We, we must, we must, we must talk, if I can find those pages here, we must talk about the upcoming holiday, Rosh Hashanah, most important. First food. Everybody likes to talk about food. So Rosh Hashanah has its foods. Right? What food is famous on Rosh Hashanah? Apples and honey. Apples and honey. I didn't hear you so good, ID, but very good. Apples and honey. Apple, everybody knows apples and honey. And the kids sing a song, dip the apple and the honey. I mean, my kids run around the house singing this song, and I sing it and with my third graders, and they think it's funny because it's a kindergarten song, but we have a good time. Why are we dipping the apple in the honey? So by the meal, usually the first night of Rosh Hashanah, some people the second night, and actually, um, till recently in my house, the custom was to do all these special foods by day by the day meal. And the reason was because I put my kids to sleep early. So by the time I get home from synagogue, they're not awake. But all their teachers have been telling them about dip the apple in the honey. So if there's no dip the apple in the honey, they'll be quite disappointed. So to not disappoint my children, besides everybody likes apples and honey anyways, so we dip the apples in the honey. And uh, the idea of all these different foods, I'll give you a few examples. Um... We, we're, we're, we're looking for like good signs. In other words, we're going to say, dip the apple in the honey is a sign that I should have a sweet new year. Which again, has different connotations. Either I'm praying to God for a sweet new year, or I'm recognizing that I need a sweet new year. So therefore, that's the idea of different foods that we eat. We also dip our challah. You know what challah is, Ben? Have you ever heard of challah? I have not. Okay, I don't even know the English word for it. It is a, a, a very fluffy bread. It is usually wheat flour. It doesn't have to be. It's wheat flour and oil and eggs, lots of sugar, um, water. It's created into a dough, and, uh, and then you just bake it, and it rises. It's, a very, it's almost like cake. It's really very good. And uh, some people have a custom um, on Rosh Hashanah to actually put raisins in it. I love raisins. Me too. Everybody else in my house hates them. So more my, for you, more for all of us. Well, no, actually, yeah, not at my house. So, <laughs> so actually, my wife makes it herself. Many, many ladies will make it themselves. So what my wife does is she makes a few with raisins and the rest without. So I got mine and everybody else has theirs. Let me just say, your wife sounds like she's a phenomenal cook. Very, very She good. sounds like a, a lovely little, woman. Just a lovely all woman around. as well, yes. too. Yes, we're going to have to bring you I'll in, maybe, one of these, what's called a challah with raisins. You check this out. We talk about all this food. My yeah. mouth waters. Yeah, we, we got to bring this in. You, you will have some, a new treat. I'll have to make sure I can pull one out of the freezer when she's not paying attention. <laughs> um, in any case, um, that challah is also dipped in honey. Yeah. Um, we eat the head of a fish or a piece of the head of a fish. As a sign, we want to be a head, not a tail. Um, people have pomegranates because pomegranates are filled with seeds that we're telling God we want to be filled with merit, like all the seeds of a pomegranate. Um, they say a pomegranate has 613 seeds. That's the amount of commandments in the Torah. I think I tried counting a few times. 613 is a big number to count to. So true or not true, I'm sure at one time in history it was true. It's certainly not. I, I can't tell you nowadays, but if you're bored, just go buy yourself a pomegranate and start counting. Uh, some people will have um, fish. Fish is a sign of, of uh, we should multiply. Um, fish multiply. Not only do fish multiply, but they lay eggs right. under the water. So no one sees all their, all their offspring being born. So there's what to be said about that. Some people have carrots or leek or black-eyed peas, but people really play with it. Like when I talk about the head of a fish. So some people with their kids, they'll, you know, the, I don't know if you ever saw these gummy fish. Yeah. So who cares what kind of fish? You take the head of the fish. It's a, it's a candy, but who cares? Because right. the point is the same. It's, it's just a nice sign demonstrating um, what we need, what we're asking for, and also what's important. And so part of the idea of all these different signs that we're doing by the meal is, uh, is you know, sometimes we got to ground ourselves. Certainly the beginning of the year, the high holidays, um, God is judging the world. It's helpful that everybody knows what's important. A sweet year is important. Health is important. Um, children are important. Um, 
having merits in God's eyes. These are all important things. And sometimes we, with all the hubbub and running around and life, we, we forget what's important. And I, I think one of the one of the points or purposes when we do all these signs is to is again to to help us refocus what's important. It's just one of those uh, one of those good things. And the best time to tell your children what's important is around a meal. First of all, there's something psychological. We're all eating together. There's something something important, nice, enjoyable when family is sitting together. We have discussions. We talk. You know, in my house, we do something very very interesting. We go around the table. My wife runs it. And she asks each person, what are they going to try to do this year that will be special? And the idea is don't pick something humongous because, you know, on New Year's, everybody says the resolutions. And the joke is they have the resolution one day and they're done the next day. That's the, all the workout places love New Year's because everybody runs in January 2nd. They buy their, their membership and, uh, and then they don't come back after two weeks. So, but they're still paying the membership. So, we don't pick large things. We pick small things. I'll be careful with this blessing. I'll think of something. Like I happen to like to pick personally. When I get up in the morning, I thank God in a very excited way that I'm alive and well. That's it. Nothing major because it's hard to do major stuff. It's hard to remember, hard to keep track. One of my children came to me. I'm going to be careful not to say anything that's not nice a whole year. I said, yeah, that's great, but it's a little bit much. You know, some of us try for a day to get through that. So, um, but that's what we do. And of course, everybody knows, everybody knows that on Rosh Hashanah, we blow the chauffeur. I forgot to bring mine with me. I have a feeling that I would blow it here. I, I actually have a good chauffeur story on a, state, on a show that I used to, I interned on a while ago. The guy that answered the phone for this morning show kept a chauffeur on his desk. Why? In, in his off, well, he, was, he was Jewish, but, oh. they, they, it, but he would occasionally blow it on air. Really? Yeah. And it didn't blow out the mics or anything? No. Well, he wasn't real close to it. Oh, he would okay. stand back, you know. Right. I, I, yeah. He would, he would sit back, and it, it, it became a thing on the show. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. So I was thinking to bring it in. Of course, I forgot with all the other things I forgot to bring with me. Um, there's many purposes of that chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah. Besides, yeah. obviously, God said, blow the chauffeur. It's, a, it's like a call to repent. People should repent, do what we call teshuva. Um, it's also a sign that God is king, like they would blow trumpets um, when they uh, coronated a king. It reminds us how the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. It reminds us uh, about the binding of Isaac. Again, something we spent a lot of time with um, in a couple months. Just how Abraham was going uh, to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and God said, stop. And Isaac was replaced. The replacement was a ram. So to remember that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, we take something from the ram, that's his horn, and we blow that. Um, it also reminds us of the Messiah. It also is a, a reminder about the prophets, how they would tell people to, to repent. And, I, and uh, it's interesting, I, I wrote myself a note here, as time is ticking down. I don't know if you're familiar with the sounds. What happens is, there's a long sound, mm -hmm. what we call it, the kia. It just goes too, to a long sound, mm -hmm. about four or five seconds. Then there's a broken sound, three pieces. Toot, toot, toot. That toot sounds funny, but that's what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very short, broken up one. Nine, uh, most people do 10 or 12 quick sounds. And then another long sound afterwards. So these sounds are very symbolic. So what happens is that the first long sound, straight, you know, unbroken, means I'm good. So the first, the first long sound is telling us how a person is born whole, complete. Then maybe he sins, he's a little broken. So then we need the short sounds. He cries, he feels bad for what he's done. And then he's fixed. Now he's that long, now he's that long, complete person again. Um, I know I'm running out of time. And the last few weeks, I neglected to make sure everybody's been paying attention. So... R.D., are you on? Yes, sir. Did you learn anything today? Um, I did. I learned about Rosh Hashanah and um, the, the apples and honey and what about that? Um, man, I. what else did I learn today? I learned about writing the scrolls. Okay, I, good. I always find all anything about the scrolls I find interesting. Good. Excellent. Ben, anything? Well, I definitely learned the answer to my question about what happens if you make a mistake with uh, good one. writing the Torah. Very good and, one. And uh, apparently 
really like honey. Yes, we really like honey. Leonard, yeah. uh, you with me? But I can't hear Leonard. Which is the very fluffy bread, and that pomegranate has six hundred and thirteen uh, feet. Excellent.